Hello, and welcome to the Pursuing Veritas podcast, a podcast dedicated to reflecting on theology, history, and culture from the perspective of a follower of Jesus. Last week we looked at urban legends from Jesus' life. We looked at the idea that he was a carpenter, that he only spoke Hebrew, or that he grew up in tiny town Nazareth. Uh, and we found there's a lot of variants on, on those sorts of things. You can There's a lot of interpretation that we've got to do. Um, but to just say that Jesus was a carpenter or Jesus only spoke Hebrew is at best a little misleading. There's, there's more information that we needed to know about those things about Jesus' life. So this week, we're going to take a look at legends surrounding Jesus' teaching. And like some of what we talked about last week, I don't expect you guys to necessarily believe some of these myths, but a couple of them are things that are pretty popular in, in pop culture, so it, it'll be important to know uh, those things. Well, I thought last week's lesson was very good, and I, I guess as a teacher you'd, you'd think that because I thought about it a lot during the week. Yeah, that's what I want to hear. And that's <laughs> exactly hey, Jake, Peggy Sicker walks through here. She's supposed to be in new members class. Oh, Peggy needs to go upstairs? Yes. Okay. And uh, it was, it's interesting. Even during the week, I softened a little bit. <laughs> you know, then you talk to my wife, and she said, yeah, I heard that too. And it's I don't want to believe it either, but it's probably right. Well, next week we're going to talk about Christology, which will hopefully help us talk through, I think, maybe where you and I were kind of coming at cross-sections. Okay. Cross um, that's been scheduled. We're going to talk about Christology. Who is Jesus? Because that's obviously a very, very, very important question as, you're, as we're looking at this. So maybe, you know, hopefully that'll, that'll provide some food for thought as well, but I'm glad to hear you. Yeah. Um, all right, so this week, uh, we've got two or three we're going to try to go through. Uh, things about Jesus' teaching. Um, and the first thing we're going to look at is Jesus' teaching on baptism. All right, This is, this is not really Jesus' teaching, per se, but uh, this is the legend that Jesus baptized people. Did Jesus baptize people? So, obviously Jesus has a lot to say about baptism, right? There's the Great Commission, go and baptize. That's probably the most famous thing he says. Uh, but there's a lot that Jesus says about baptism in other places as well, especially the Gospel of John. Baptism is, of course, very important for what it means to be a Christian. It's an outward sign of an inward transformation, or it's a covenant entrance into the family of God. Those are kind of the two big ideas of what baptism is in Christianity. And Jesus, so Jesus talks a lot about baptism, and so it would make sense, right, for him to baptize as well. So, turn with me to John 3. If I do that, it's over. You guys are going on to the next subject, and I'm still looking for it. That's why I don't like doing this. I use that too. And then i got to go back. John 3, what? John 3, 22. It's so convenient. It is, I know. It really is. All right, John 3.22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained with them there and was baptizing. Oh, I guess I was wrong. I guess Jesus did baptize. All right, so that ends that myth. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> now turn to John 4, 1. See, 
this, this is the advantage of the paper Bible, because Donna and I are already there. <laughs> I was still <laughs> grasping the other one. I'm going too fast. I'm pretty slow. What was Sorry. the next Sorry. one? 4-1. Four, one. Four, one. Okay, got it. Okay. It's actually 4-1 and 2. Uh, now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. I knew that was That's why I was struggling on the last one. That's right. <laughs> All right. So, which is it? Did Jesus baptize or didn't he? Three one. Three twenty two. Oh, twenty two. That's right. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the countries, and he remained with them. But I don't know. Does it doesn't really specify Jesus is with them and baptizing, right? And was baptizing. He remained with them and was baptizing. Yeah. And the Greek is um, baptizing. It's pretty clearly he was baptizing. Okay. Yeah. So could it be on the John 4-1, it was just at that time he wasn't baptizing? Okay, so that's a good question. So far as we can tell, this is chronological. There's no, this is all part of the same story that's going on here. So far as we can tell. Now, 4-1 and 2 is the transition point. Right? So we have John the Baptist. The point of the end of chapter 3 in John is, is John the Baptist's relationship with Jesus and how he's exalting Jesus. And then as we switch over to chapter 4, we're going to switch to the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Mm -hmm. Which is also a actually a baptism story, but not in the same way that actual baptisms are. But that's a different conversation for a different time. Um, <clears throat> But it seems like it's chronological. That first word you hear, now when Jesus learned, he left, now when Jesus learned, that's the beginning of 4-1, and then 3, he left Judea and departed again from Galilee. It seems chronological. It seems like this is all part of the same story. Let me, put it, let me, let me pose the question a different way. Why would the author of the Gospel, John, John, say this about Jesus? Why mention this?
he is, uh, the, this baptism story that we have here, okay, is actually a story about how Jesus gets married. Uh, I'm sorry, not that, the woman at the well. It's a story about how Jesus gets, quote unquote, married, just like Joseph and all the patriarchs in the Old Testament, not Joseph, Jacob and all the patriarchs in the Old Testament, all right? Now, I, I would love to show you all of that, but the point of all of that is what John, the author of the gospel, will do with Jesus is he will paint a picture for you of how you think Jesus should be, and he'll relate it to something you know really well, and then he'll kind of slowly differentiate Jesus from that. Right? So here in, in the end of three and the beginning of four, John is doing the same thing. Okay? This is a teaching technique. He's beginning his passage three, in 3.22 by comparing and showing how similar John the Baptist and Jesus are, right? John's dis John and his disciples baptized, Jesus and his disciples baptized, right? And then in this intervening space, John the Baptist goes on to differentiate who Jesus is. He talks about how Jesus is greater than him, right? How he's unworthy to, how John is unworthy, how Jesus is worthy, um, how Jesus is, is superior to who John is, right? And then at the end of the passage, and this is where your versification and the addition of chapters is actually unhelpful. At the end of this story, we get the differentiation. John and his disciples baptized. He was John the baptizer, right? Jesus does not. For Jesus, baptizing is something that his disciples do. It's the followers of Jesus who baptize us, we baptize, right? Not Jesus himself. Now, why John does that probably takes us into baptismal theology that we have, we're not going to talk about it here today because that's, again, a whole different ball of wax. But for as weird as this passage is, 3.22 saying that Jesus does baptize, 4.1 and 2 suggesting that he does not. Okay. Um, it seems like it's a teaching technique that's going on here. Right? And so the literary context of John is what we have to use to make sense of that. So you believe Jesus never did baptize? I would say something very guarded, like there's no biblical evidence for Jesus baptizing someone. And one of the reasons I think that is, is if, you, if we look at the Corinthian letters from Paul, there's that passage where he goes, and I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you because it would have you know, made some of you feel like you were special, basically, right? And that, I think, is what would happen with people who are baptized by Jesus, too. So in 322, it's just when it says he, Jesus was baptizing, it was his disciples were baptizing, they were lumping them all together. Exactly. Yep, yep. And, of course, baptizing in Jesus is under Jesus' authority and in Jesus' name, right. presumably, right? So, I mean, that's all that's all woven into there, too. But, yeah. It would be like, and we don't do this here, but I belong to churches where there's, like, a big baptismal ceremony every year, and it's hundreds of people who are being baptized, right? And oftentimes the senior pastor, well, actually, the, the, we've done this in the lake. Uh, the senior pastor is actually still up on shore, and he is kind of leading, you know, the congregation oh, yeah. of people that is there, right? He is leading the baptism with, with air quotes around it, right? He is he is heading up to certain. He's not actually baptizing anyone. It's all the other people who are down in the water who are baptizing people. So you could say, 
Oh, Pastor Mark Beeson and his staff are, I oh, that was the name of this guy, were baptized, you know, baptized 250 people today at Granger Community Church. But Pastor Mark Beeson didn't actually do any of the baptism. Right. It's still yeah. accurate to say that. Mm -hmm. That's what I think is going on. Oh, okay. So, is this a myth? I mean, we don't have clear evidence. It seems, John seems to suggest Jesus didn't baptize people. Why is that? Again, I think it's probably because it would have denoted some sort of favoritism. People could have very easily interpreted that as, well, I was baptized by Jesus. You were just baptized by Peter, right? Uh, and that could have been very divisive very quickly in the early church. And so I think Jesus probably doesn't baptize people. There's no clear biblical evidence that he does. But is John just saying, like, at this time, like, I'm, I'm, that's one yep. thing I'm not familiar with, like, when John wrote the book, Jesus was still living, I mean, was still living how many years was Jesus alive when John wrote the book? So usually we say John writes after the ascension. Oh, okay. And after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written, too. Okay, okay. And so John is written towards the end of John's life, and John is pretty young when okay. he's here. So think, think of it like... Imagine this is happening in the year 30, mm -hmm. and John is written in like the year 80 or 90. Okay, okay. That's yeah. why I was wondering if it was like at that time he wrote the book or something like that, you know, but okay. I heard he was the last living disciple. Yes, so far as we can tell. Yeah, oh. everybody agrees on that. Yeah. 95 AD. Yeah, yeah. Between 90 and 100 ish, that's when people will say John died. Very old. Uh, church tradition holds that he, uh, a Roman emperor, tried to boil him in oil, and he did. It would not kill him. And after, you, after we look at the end of the Gospel of John, there's that passage about you know this one will not die until he sees me, sort of stuff. It's like, what's going on? And John himself says, well, Jesus didn't say he would not die. He just said he wouldn't die until he, he sees me, which is why people think one of the reasons people think John the Apostle wrote. The Apocalypse, the Book of oh, Revelation, because that would seem to be John seeing Jesus. So, all sorts of stuff wrapped up in that, of course. But, yes. All right. So, this isn't so much a myth as a clarification, but sometimes you will hear people say, "Oh, Jesus baptized." You know, Jesus baptized, and so we should too. I have a distinct person in my mind who says that, but we're not going to talk about them right now. All right. So, there's no clear biblical evidence that Jesus baptized. All right, urban legend number two. Urban legend number two is perhaps the Bible verse that anyone off the street knows. Thou shalt not judge. All right, don't judge. Right. In contemporary American culture, this has been transformed into a rallying cry for individual autonomy, for freedom from those things that really bother us. Don't judge me. Right. Don't judge me. Who are, who are you to judge? All right. In church world, it's often a rallying cry for those who have an axe to grind against the church or Christianity and our, our long history of not accepting various groups of people, that's the claim, all right, or of not accepting various behaviors. So you'll hear, don't judge my lifestyle, don't judge my choices, don't judge my opinions, beliefs, or values, and the, the thing that gets attached to that is don't judge me because Jesus said, thou shalt not judge, right? Don't judge. So, if we're reading the Bible as a collection of aphorisms, as, as a collection of sayings and principles and things like that, 
it might seem like Jesus says this. So turn to turn to Matthew seven one. Matthew seven one. Judge not, that you may not be judged. Right? Seems pretty clear. Jesus says, "Don't judge." All right. Now. The problem with this is, like all other Bible verses, it's surrounded by other Bible verses. Right? And so if you just read 7.1, on its own, by itself, in our own context of 21st century America, and the things that we want Jesus to say to back up the things that we like, it's going to sound like Jesus is telling you not to disparage anything that anyone else ever does. Right? Anyone's choice, anyone's lifestyle, don't judge. Don't judge me. Don't judge me, bro. Right? Right? Now, there's more to this, obviously. So what do we need to make sense of this legend? Well, the first thing we need to figure out is what we mean by judge. Right? And that's going to vary from person to person. But when you hear the word, hear or say the word judge, what do you, what, what do you mean by that? I know what I know when I well I know I try not to because it comes into my mind not to judge people but like if it's a lifestyle or well well for instance like if I'm at say Walmart on okay. Telegram okay. and you well. see them, and you see them come in with their pajama pants mm -hmm. and their house shoes you start judging like what you know like what a Hoosier well, you right why you are must, you um, why are you out in yeah, that yeah right? yeah yeah and then I I do realize what I'm doing in the night you know I stop myself and start thinking sure sure know, sure sure. But maybe there's a sick kid at home and they just hate a brother. You know what I mean? Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. I find it judging and being critical. Uh -huh. When are you just being critical? I think judging is, I don't know, I think yeah, like it's point. the same thing. <laughs> okay, so judging is often very critical. Yeah. Okay. Isn't well, it? I, th I think so. I yeah. agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's not, when I'm judging, it means absolutely. But when a judge, you know, in a court of law, it means uh, there's going to be, you're going to pay for that, right? right? Right, so that's a good distinction too, Ron. There's a difference between when I think something, right, and when an institution, we could say an institution thinks something. When a church excommunicates someone for behavior mm -hmm. or uh, the prison, you know, the judicial system sends someone to prison because they did something wrong. There's, there's, there's some sort of difference between when I go, gosh, why is he, why is he wearing that? Right, yeah, and, exactly. And what happens in other countries sometimes, which is, oh, that man is wearing that. He's going to go to jail. Yeah. Right? right? There's a difference there, right? So there are all sorts of different ways we judge. Uh, so it's important for us to just not think, oh, like this word here, judge, covers kind of all of those different scenarios, right? So that's the first thing we need to know. Uh, the second thing we need to know is that the word in Greek here, uh, which is krino, conveys a sense of critical and or severe condemnation. There you go. All right? <laughs> severe or critical condemnation, right? So it's not just an attitude per se, okay? Condemnation is a little stronger than mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. It's doing something about it. It is tending towards 
that kind of legal side of things. We were talking about the institutional side of things. Now, in the ancient world, you can condemn you can condemn someone by calling down a curse on them or denoting shame in their lives. There's a, a little more institutional power that individuals tend to have, right? Um, it's not just every person on Twitter going, "Gosh, you know, forget you," yeah. right? That's it's a little different than that. Mm -hmm, right. Okay? Yeah. But there is still some force behind an individual doing this. Um, now let's look at some literary context, because this is the thing that I think really helps us the most. Uh, we've looked at seven one. Let's look at seven two. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That makes verse one read slightly differently, right? It almost seems like the emphasis should be on the second part of verse 1. Judge not in order that you will not be judged. Right? Verse 2 says, for when you judge someone else, you set up the standard by which you yourself are going to be judged in the future. You're going to get to 5, aren't you? Oh, yes, we're going to get to 5. <laughs> but actually, I want to go back first. Go back to 6. 6.12, the petition of the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, mm -hmm. right? There's this idea of keeping the standard by which we act consistent with the standard that we want God to act against us, right? And that is where we're beginning to see this is the idea that Jesus is hitting on here, right? It's, and then, of course, as, uh, as Ron has pointed out, verses 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Could you translate that, that you will see clearly to judge the other guy? You will see clearly to judge the other guy, precisely. Okay. Now, it's not quite judge in terms of severe and critical condemnation. All right, it's more an idea of discernment. All right, once you take the log out of your own eye, you will be able to see accurately enough to decide whether or not the speck in your brother's eye needs to come out. Right? Because I mean, think about it. Like, if you get a piece of sawdust in your eye, does it, do you always need to go to the hospital? No. Do you always need to wash out your eye with water? You don't even always need to do that. Sometimes you just got to blink several right. times, right? But when you've got a stick in your eye, that's a pretty serious problem, right? Deal with that serious problem first, and then you can either remove the speck from your brother's eye, or you can see clearly enough to figure out if you even need to do that. And if you have a log, you're really in trouble. Right. You are. You're hosed, man. That, that's why I always found that this passage, because... You know, Jesus has a log in your eye, but your brother only has like a little speck. So yep. I'm like, wow, that, that really just brings it home because like even at my work, you know, you get into the cackling and henny stuff, you know, and then and people know I'm a Christian and I'm like, well, that's not really Christian like me for, you know, so then I, I pull myself back because then I, that's one thing I realize what I'm doing. Right. Awareness helps yeah. you with that. Yeah. yeah that Absolutely. I do have a big log in my eye. You know? I think it, this is really hard though. It I is. mean, I struggle with this my it's, whole life. Okay, it's very hard. Because everybody wants to stick to the do not judge. Right. But we shouldn't. But then when you start thinking, well, 
whole life. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I sin, right? Yep. So how am I ever going to be able to help somebody else when I still have sin in my life? Mm -hmm. So that's definitely a concern. I think part of the part of the answer that Jesus would give us is look at who the speck, whose eye the speck is in. He doesn't say neighbor, actually. He doesn't say co-worker, right? He uses brother, right? Now, I think the specific familial relation is less important here than the type of relationship this is referring to, right? This is someone you're close to. This is someone you have a relationship with. This is someone you know and who, you know, in theory, you should be able to have a conversation mm -hmm. with about a spec or a log, right? And so I think... I would suggest part of what Jesus is saying here is when you're going to use discernment in these situations, make sure it's in your family, you're in your Christian family, right? Your relational spheres. It's a close coworker, right? It's someone you have a friendship or a relationship with. We're in uh, Matthew 7, actually. Like this to an extent with people who aren't Christians, but they're close friends. Okay. People, you know, at work with people, you know, hey man, what, like, why are you like constantly cussing people out? Just like kind of calling them on that sort of thing, right? <clears throat> That's exactly where I was going. Yeah, but, but, like that took time, right? It was not a, oh, I'm walking down the street and I see someone cursing mm -hmm. at someone else and going, hey, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> right? <clears throat> I have no relationship with that person. What I say to them is going to come off as pedantic, and probably <clears throat> a little bit hypocritical, because they're like, oh, you've never cursed at someone? And like, I can't say yes to that, so they're going to be like, well, why can't I curse at this person, right? The relationship needs to be there. And this is what we see with Paul, to, to again go to Paul, if we look at larger biblical context about this, I'm just going to throw out a bunch of verses at you, you don't need to write these down, but in 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 1, Philippians 3, 1 John 4, and 2 John 10, Right? There is this call by Paul and John to do this sort of thing. Hold people accountable, use your discernment, but do it in the people who are close, closest to you. The first Corinthians passage is especially clear. Do the right thing to the people you know, but you can't expect the pagans to know what the right thing mm -hmm. is. Right? And that's how Paul limits what the Corinthians are supposed to do in terms of judgment. When, oh, okay, and then the final point, sorry. Final thing we need to realize, this is epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. So if you look at Matthew 7, 1, and you say, judge not in order that you're not judged, and people go, people say today, don't judge me. <clears throat> From a very philosophical standpoint, that's a self-defeating claim. Okay, self-defeating claim is something that when you turn it on itself, it doesn't make sense. Okay? I don't believe that there's any truth. Okay? Or there's no there's no such thing as truth. That's a self-defeating claim. Because the very statement is a truth claim. Okay? And that's how don't judge works. Donna, don't judge me. Donna, your response to me when I say to don't judge you is, or should be, don't judge me. Right? Saying don't judge me is a judgment call. Right, okay. right. It is. So that's what we call a self-defeating claim in philosophy um, that doesn't carry a whole lot of argumentative weight. 
okay, argumentative weight being kind of the how is this constructed? How does, you know, does this make sense? Should I listen to what this person is saying? No, it carries rhetorical weight. It, carries, it makes you feel bad. Oh man, I judge that person. Should I not yeah, I know that's, that I know that's, I know. I think that's the difference between a Christian and a Christian is a Christian while you're, you do, like me, I catch myself, I know I shouldn't be doing it. But uh, I got a coworker. I've been I know her for twenty years, mm -hmm. and she she knows what pushes my buttons mm -hmm. with her talk and her what you know that. And and I, I started I'm like <coughs> judging because I'm like you're doing that on purpose just to get my go, you yeah. know. But but I still pull, try to pull myself back. Right. Right. Now the other piece to all of this is of course Christians have done a really good job, really good job, really bad job of judging. Yes. Historically, currently, mm -hmm. in my own life, right? Yes. Yeah. That <coughs> as well. Okay. Jesus is still telling us not to judge here. Okay. That does not mean don't use discernment or don't hold people accountable, people in your circles mm -hmm. accountable. But it does mean that you need to be generous and you need to avoid being a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. Because, as the Lord's Prayer says, as you have forgiven others, you're going to be forgiven. The way that you treat other people is the way God is going to judge you. This is the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? Be very careful how you discern, how you judge, how you talk to other folks about what they do. Make sure that you're not doing right. that in your own life, right? And be very careful with that. Um, yeah, we've got to. We just got to be careful, right? So, um, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind. Okay? It's uh, a plea to be generous and avoid hypocrisy in relating to people. Okay, but it's highly misleading to say Matthew seven one judge not is a license for doing whatever you want. That's a misleading myth. At best. Questions or clarifications on that? I just really at home. Just a real quick story. Mm -hmm. I've been playing golf with these two guys for years. One of them for <laughs> 50 years old. <Okay. laughs> Not quite that far. 40 years. Yeah. Okay. The other one for 10. And he's actually come here on Trivia Night and tried to. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. But he uses a large name thing way too much. I have become, bothers me when I hear it, mm -hmm. but don't say it. Steve was playing golf a couple weeks ago. Okay. And he hit a bad shot and said the same thing. That hit me hard. Yeah. I see it from the preacher. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, it shouldn't have, it shouldn't have made any difference. But then, like, I think, I was like, who am I to judge? But I do know him enough. I don't think he's a Christian. He says he is. His wife is. And uh -huh. used to go to, actually used to go to Baldwin Baptist Church. Oh, all right. But uh, I'm going to talk to him about it the next time we're together and say, just, I just want to let you know, Trey, this really bothers mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. when I hear that. It always has, but I haven't said anything about it because who am I? But I just want to let you know. That. And I think I'll take it really well, but I think I need to do that. Yes. Good. I like it. Good. Mm -hmm. I'll be interested in hearing how that goes. Yeah. He's a good guy. Especially, I mean, yeah, because he sounds like a good yeah, guy, and you guys have a just, great relationship. It's just that thing that you live in the society, you hear it, you watch movies, mm -hmm. and I think he just says it because... Yep. <laughs> yep. And then I'm going to let him, I think what it says is I'm going to let him know.
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There are two schools of thought on this. The first is that Jesus is referring to the eye of a sewing needle, which I was going to bring for you this morning and I totally forgot. All right? If you've seen a sewing needle, you know that the eye is very, 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 very small. All right? And if you've ever seen a camel, you know that camels are not very, very small. <laughs> And so the, the meaning here is that it's obviously impossible for a camel to make it through the eye of a sewing needle. Therefore, if you're wealthy, you're doomed. Okay? You're not going to enter the kingdom of God, although God can supernaturally intervene to save you. Verse 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God. Right? That's the first way to interpret this. The second way to interpret this is to say that Jesus is referring to a type of gate known in the ancient world. It's called a needle, and it's very tiny. Okay, so imagine you're in a walled city, right? We've all seen these in movies, and you have those big, the big gates, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe open at sunrise and close at sunset, or something like that. Okay? Certain cities would have basically a secondary gate next to that. It would be very small, only so big as a single person could fit through it at a time. It would be guarded at night and all of those sorts of things. Uh, you couldn't get an army through it. That's, that's the point. But you also can't get animals through it unless they are small. Right? Camels are very tall animals. And so if you want to get a camel into a city at night, you've got to get them through the eye of the needle, get them through this door. And to do that, you have to take all of the stuff off of them. You have to have them kneel down and walk through this door. It's a pain. It's terrible. It's almost worth it to just stay outside the city for the night and take your chance with, chances with robbers and bandits because it's going to take you hours and hours of very, very difficult work to take all of your earthly possessions off of the camel to enter the city. All right? So that's a beautiful picture of what Jesus could be saying here. So this is why this is a pretty common interpretation. It's really difficult, Jesus would be saying, for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. It's just like having to take all of your material possessions off of your camel to do what you want to do to get into the city. You would have to, <clears throat> as he may have just said, take all your possessions away and follow, you know, give them all away and follow me. Right? So, either of those interpretations are pretty solid ways to approach this. Right? My gut feeling is it's probably the, the, the door, eye of the needle uh -huh. thing, just because of this follows right after the, the story of the rich young man. And so Jesus is saying, look, what this guy didn't do is what you have to do if you're wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. You have got to be willing to and act upon, if necessary, the call to give up that which you have for the sake of the kingdom. So, whether it's nearly impossible, or it's extremely difficult for those to enter the kingdom, there is going to be this great reversal that goes on in the kingdom of heaven. This is verse 31. Okay? But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Right? So in the context of wealth and money and things like that, Jesus is saying, in the kingdom, it's not going to matter, like it does now in the world, how many billions of dollars you have. What matters is, what have you done for the kingdom, and what is your relationship with God? Living in luxury now does not mean you're going to be living in luxury later. 
questions on that interpretation of Mark 10. That's the second time you've told me that story. The first time, the first time I heard it in my whole oh. life. I'm very, <laughs> I love it. It, ma it makes all this make a little more sense. It does. And I, th I think it's, there's, there's, as Americans, we're all wealthy, right? We're here today. You all have your own Bible or your own phone to, on which to read the Bible. I have two on me and a computer over there, right? I am, um, I might be first world poor, but uh, I, I'm still rich compared to the rest of the world, right? I still have wealth and... <coughs> It's it's humbling to me to think, hey, what if what if I had to take all my what if I believe all my stuff right at the gate? What if I had to take everything off my camel? Uh, would I be willing to do that? Uh, I have friends who are who are missionaries, right? And they will they will put everything in a storage unit. Right? So they're not, I mean, you can, oh, they're not really leaving it. But, I mean, but they do. Right, they yeah. put it on the storage unit. They go over to the Czech Republic for 10 years, right? Or to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They leave everything. I mean, yeah, they take their, you know, they take their phones, they take their family, they take their laptops and, and some clothes, but they, they functionally leave everything. I collect books. I have a lot of books. I have a list of books I'm going to grab in case there's like a nuclear holocaust, right? Shakespeare is one of them, because so we've just got to save Shakespeare, right? But I've got, like, a, like, I love books. I don't know that I could leave my books for 10 years to go talk to people about Jesus in the Congo. I mean, that's, I mean, I... One of the reasons I keep talking about this rich story of the rich young man is because I need to learn this story of the rich young man and, and live it out. Because I've got a whole lot to do still to give up everything for the kingdom. Yeah, I struggle with that too, just like you say, we're all rich here. But if you just focus on the United States of America, some have more than others, I think for someone that doesn't know the Lord and is rich, oh my gosh, I, I do think it's even more mm -hmm. impossible. Yes. I feel like God has blessed me greatly in, in my life. But I feel like if I was in my teens and had a rich mom and dad mm -hmm. and was cat sports car. I don't know that'd be where I am today. I don't know that I'd be a Christian. It's mm -hmm. just it just seems so hard because I know right now today it's like I don't have to rely on God for like I did when I first got married. <laughs> and and, and it, it is hard to, when you have stuff and you don't have to rely on him for your daily needs. It's easy to fall away. And I constantly have to push myself yep. back. Tough. And I think as Americans, like you said, we're all that way mm -hmm. if you start looking at other countries. Right. Right. And it's, it's, I mean, I think what you just said there at the end, Ron, especially, is really good. You have to keep coming back. I mean, this is, for me at least, this is not something I'm like, oh yeah, I learned this and I internalize yeah. it and yeah. I move on. Like, I, every, every month when I write that check to church or to this ministry or, and I'm like, like we, you know, I have to be on a tight budget this month for groceries because I did this. You know, like that's frustrating to me. That's like, wait, wait, wait. Like this isn't mine to begin with. Mm -hmm. right. And like, 
in, like, internalizing this and really living it out is a little more difficult. And just like, oh yeah, we should, we should do this. So you'll probably hear me talk about it more. <laughs> all right, so Jesus never says that money or the love of money is the root of all evil, but he does reveal the difficulty of those who are wealthy entering the kingdom, right? And so I think, as we just said, for us, there's, there's some really practical um, wisdom that we need to take from that, and things that we need to do in our own lives to make sure that we are willing and able to take up even off our camels. I think, to me, it's just, money's just not important to Jesus. Obviously, it's just, it's just not important. It's, yes. It just doesn't mean anything in the yep. kingdom of God. Yep. Whether you've got a lot, whether you've got a little, whether you've got in the middle, whatever you've got, it's yep. just not important. Yep. Is that? Oh, that's that is, I could not have said that better. Yep. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It sure is to us, though. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It is. All right, let's talk about some application stuff. Uh, so what do we do with these urban legends we've looked at today? It's nice to sit down here and eat donuts and drink coffee and talk about them, but what are we going to do? Uh, my first suggestion is we need to be careful not to read our own theology or preferences into Jesus' teaching. Whether it's our theology of baptism and how important baptism is, or our approach to money, or our thoughts of judgment, it may be that Jesus thinks differently than we uh, we do, and we need to remember that. And we need to recognize that difference, and not just assume that Jesus thinks like we do. The second thing is, uh, we need to be very discerning when we judge, if we judge. Right? And it's probably better to just say we need to be discerning when we discern. <laughs> We need to be very careful about that. Uh, the third thing is, as American Christians, we need to work on our generosity and limiting our hypocrisy. Right. And this is easier said than done, of course, uh, but something to keep in mind. Okay, I'm going to get political here for just a second. Forgive me. All right, and I voted for this person, our governor. All right, our governor has some things to say about marriage, all right? And he had an affair mm -hmm. with someone who was on his staff, all right? That right there, that is, he is far from the only person to have done this, but that, Christians need to stop doing that. That thing right there. Very publicly saying one thing and then living oh, yeah. as if what they oh, said did not matter. And throwing our governor under the bus, but speaking for myself, there are things like that that I do as well. So I I am right up there in the front of the line with him on the, the hypocrisy train. But we all need to work on that. And then finally, I would say, those of us with wealth, and again, relative to the world, that's all of us, uh, we need to take seriously the difficulty of entering the kingdom that Jesus warns us about can't put our material wealth ahead of the kingdom's work. Uh, and I'm going to, uh, this is partly confession to you today, uh, I am struggling through this because I, really think that I don't know how much all of you know about this, but 
the department at SLU is undergoing some changes, and there's all sorts of stuff going on. Um, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to finish my PhD at SLU for a variety of reasons. We'll put it that way. Um, and it's really frustrating to me because I've invested a lot of time, a lot of money, and a whole lot of effort into doing this. And uh, this might be God speaking to me about my need to do something else for the kingdom. Um, I don't, I'm not going to go into the specifics of what that might be, but I don't, I don't want to do that thing. I don't want to do that thing. Part of the reason I don't want to do that thing is I'm not going to make as much money as I would if I got my PhD and was able to be a professor. And I am really, really struggling with that, and I have been for the past about a year now, right? Um, and so as I was preparing for this lesson today, this is one of the things that really struck me is I, I have got to learn this lesson here, and I've got to keep learning this lesson here. Um, and I, I have got to remember to put God's kingdom ahead of material wealth and comfort. Because that is something I am struggling with. So, confession time is over. All right. Um, but those are just some applications. Um, but I you're probably to... struggling with, it doesn't mean you have to go into the mission field of the Congo. God could be needing wanting you to get your PhD and just putting you through it, right? I mean, there is no right or wrong. Right, right. There's a lot of stuff yes. Yes, yes. surrounding this. Yeah, it's not just a, I'm not called to the Congo. I don't I don't feel like I'm called to the Congo at the moment, right? But any kind of organ, unless, unless you are feeling called to the mission field or something like that. But he could be, you could just be reading this, and that's a really good thing right. to do. Right. But it's a really good thing. To a do lot of PhDs need the Christian. Yes. Yeah. For, for yes. So that's, of course, complicating everything I'm thinking and praying about. But yes. Um, yeah. No, thank you. I'm not going. To, I mean, I have a friend who said, "Never ever tell God I'm not going to." I don't just ever say that. No, then you'll end up there. But. Yeah. So I said, "Oh gosh, yep, I'm I'm never going to be sent to the chair of the theology yeah. department at the University of Notre Dame." Heck no. Uh, <laughs> All right. Um, any final questions or clarifications? Um, I had on baptism. Yes. I know. I know the myth was did Jesus baptize, but does it say actually? Because this is like um, I've heard a couple of things, but does it actually say in there that in order to be saved, that you have to be baptized? That's been an ongoing like. Because I listen to this program, every man has an answer. Okay. And he's hey. no uh, Mike. It begins with a K. Oh, okay. And he has that Ray guy on every. Uh, okay, Ray Comfort. Yeah, he yeah. has him on every Friday. But anyway, somebody asked about do you have to be baptized, and he's and he's saying, what about those countries where people get saved and they don't have, like, a, a water source to be like you know put all the way under and up. And so I just was wondering at that because. Yes. No, that was an excellent question. I'm trying to find my favorite verse to totally quote out of context to remember about this. Uh, in one of the Peters, Peter says, in First uh, Peter 3.21, Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God of good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm saying, but is it saying that you have to be baptized? Because I know there's, there's a lot of scripture about being baptized, but... Baptism saves you. 
the Bible. Um, no, that's that's a good question, Donna, and there's a lot that goes into that. And and there is um, a, uh, there are theological categories that come into play here as, as well. So what, what we there are two things we can talk about. We can talk about normative theology. That is theology that applies to people like us, right? We're not we're not on death's doorstep. We've all been in church multiple times. We've all heard the gospel multiple times, right? Normative theology, and then there is uh, there are special situations. Okay? The thief on the cross, for example. Mm -hmm. If you believe the thief on the cross went to heaven, like Jesus says he did, right? you have to create space in your theology for that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so lots of people will say things, lots of theologians will say things like, uh, people, who have an, people who hear the gospel and have an opportunity to respond to God in such a way that they can be baptized need to be baptized. People who do not have that opportunity do not need to be baptized, and God's grace will take care of them regardless. Deathbed. Deathbed confessions, thief on the cross. People who are in other countries and hear about God in dreams and don't have a faith community to be baptized in, children who die in the womb, things like this. Right? God's grace will cover all of those people. We don't need to worry about it. Because we didn't wash them in water, they won't be in heaven. So that's a really short answer to what is a super complicated and really good question. Well, like the church here, because I, I, I went, came from a church who always had the baptism open, always. Uh -huh. It was always ready. Yeah. You know, people came up, got saved, got baptized right on the spot. Uh -huh. And I noticed here, you, we don't really have anything ready. Right. And so when we, yeah. yeah. Right. So when we have people who are like saved, like I noticed this girl, uh, like two months ago came, she went up, accepted Jesus as her savior, haven't seen her since to right. get baptized. So like what happens to those, what happens to those people who are accepting Jesus and then they're, they're killed next week? when right. they had the opportunity to be baptized, but they had to be scheduled to do it. So, my yeah, answer, that's my more answer, like a rhetorical yeah, question. My, yeah, my so. answer to that is God's grace will take care of it, but we still need to be obedient, and we still need to baptize. Mm -hmm. Right. I could be wrong, but all in my whole Baptist experience and religion is that you don't have to be saved to be baptized, but why wouldn't you want to follow Jesus' instructions? Right. That's a, that's, why wouldn't you do that? Right. Thank you for listening to the Pursuing Veritas podcast. We hope that you enjoyed what you heard today and that you will consider subscribing either via pursuingveritas.com or iTunes.